This is an editorial from the Woodland Hills Reporter by Ed Fike. And a quoting, there is a blasphemous book now being advertised under the surprising slogan, don't give this book to anyone for Christmas. The book just off the press is entitled The Passover Plot by Dr. Hugh J. Schoenfield. According to the advertisement, and we quote, the Passover plot asserts and presents detailed documentation as proof that Jesus planned his own arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection, that he arranged to be drugged on the cross, stimulating death so that he could later be safely removed, revived, and thus bear out the messianic prophecies. Never before has a book stirred so mighty a tempest as this. Of course, this shocking attempt to destroy man's faith and the sanctity of our Christian tenets takes its place along the side the left-wing generated God-is-dead theory being propounded by the atheists and collectivists. After these left-wing extremists have eroded away our great religious heritage, after they have robbed the Western world of its great faith, after they have emasculated our Christian civilization of its charity and its elevation of the individual, after there is left only a malleable mass of immoral, dope-addicted, and criminally infested people, then they will take over and convert this sweet land of liberty into a socialistic, collectivistic, charnel house, a graveyard and insane asylum on a scale equaling the cosmic tragedy which has fallen upon the Chinese people. And speaking of slander, a young woman, Barbara Garson, a left-wing product of the University of California at Berkeley, has just published a bitter literary satire entitled Macbird. This slanderous thing, based upon Shakespeare's tale of ambition and murder, Macbeth, cast President Lyndon Johnson as Macbeth Macbird. Mrs. Garson explicitly accuses McBurgard Johnson of being responsible for the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Lady McBurgard cannot wash the blood off her hands, even with all the beautification of all the highways in this accursed land. One passage which is fairly typical of this libel has McBurgard, President Johnson, express himself as follows. Peace paraders marching, stopping, beatniks burning draft guards, jailing. Negroes starting sit-ins, gassing, Latin rebels rising, shooting, Asian peasants arming, bombing. And how has the vast left-wing element in the United States, which reacts with violence and horror whenever a strong word is used against it, responded to this vicious gutter sniping? The well-known left-wing critic Dwight MacDonald has ecstatically described McBird as the funniest, toughest-minded, and most ingenious political satire I've read in years. Liberal reviewers in the New York Times and Washington Post ran glowing accounts of the book. Mrs. Garson, the author of this uh, disgrace, honeymooned in Castro's communist Cuba and is a product of Castro's brand of left-wing Marxism. It doesn't worry me if people think he, Johnson, killed Kennedy, she said. I really think I've got Johnson right, even if he didn't do it. The fact that President Kennedy was murdered by a self-proclaimed communist who, like Mrs. Garson, had only recently been visiting Castro's Cuba and who had been active in the red-fronting Fair Play for Cuba committee, of course, makes no difference whatever to Mrs. Garson and her left-wing admirers.
After all, these zombies will even try to make other people believe that black is white. The truth which makes men free is usually trampled under by those who justify any means to achieve their end. I thought this would be of interest to you because it gives you an idea of the viciousness of so much of the propaganda and slander that we hear today, and yet we are accused of uh, extremism if we simply tell the truth. Let us begin now with prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that we can come to thee in the confidence that thou dost hear and answer prayer. Thou knowest the hopes, the burdens, the fears of every heart here present. Do thou speak unto us the word that we need. Give us joy in our salvation, confidence in thee, and resolution, O Lord, to stand firmly in the assurance that thou art the king, that with thee is victory, and that thou being for us, who can be against us? In Jesus' name, amen. Let us turn now to the second chapter of Acts, verses 22 through 36. We begin today our study of the creeds with the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. Acts 2, 22 through 36. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should behold another. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and the sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all our witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, 
hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he set himself. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It has become commonplace in recent years for various churches to boast that they are creedless. Creeds are regarded as restraints on the person and restrictive of faith. Any church professing to be creedless is either guilty of hypocrisy or ignorance. It is impossible for any church, any religious organization, to be creedless. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, I believe. In any religious organization, before you can become a member, you must affirm certain things. I know, for example, of a church that boasts that it has no requirement of anyone who chooses to join except that they be sincere and that they be seekers after the truth. However, before you fulfill their requirement, you must, first of all, deny that the truth is in the Bible. You must deny that the truth is in Jesus Christ incarnate, that he is the Son of God, that he was virgin-born and that he rose again from the dead. And you must believe in man. Thus, although they professedly have no creed, before they can regard you as sincere, they must question you to make sure you do not have a set of Christian beliefs. Instead, you must profess a set of humanistic beliefs. This is creedalism. Creedalism is the formula of faith. It is what the individual believes. And whether it be set forth in a short statement such as the Apostles' Creed or in a longer statement such as the Humanistic Creed or the Creed of Humanism or whether it be simply understood every religious organization has an explicit or implicit creed. Now what is a creed in relationship to a church? Every organization has certain standards of membership. And with the church, these are articles of religion, a confession of faith, canons, a directory of worship, church order, a prayer book, 
and a considerable body of authoritative statements as supplements to scripture. What is the relationship of a creed to all these things? These church standards cover the whole scope of the church's faith and the church's government. The creed is the door to the house of faith. The creed is the basic minimal statement required of every member before he can profess membership in the church and Christian faith. A creed, therefore, is the door to the house of faith. More than that, a true creed is personal. Thus it is, the Apostles' Creed, as well as the Nicene and other basic Christian creeds, begin, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe. We do not say we believe because we are not there to profess what the church as a whole affirms. In the creed, every believer, even though a thousand or ten unite to affirm it, says always, I believe. This is my personal stand. This is my faith. I assent to this. It is this that marks the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox churches from the Western churches. In those Eastern churches, the believer says, we believe. In all the Western churches, it is, I believe. This has made a vast difference. It is made for trouble in the Western church. Because when the individual believer must profess a faith, must say, I believe, I accept these articles in the creed, it rests therefore on his understanding, on his assent to these articles. But when he simply recites, we believe, Then he is saying, this the church believes, and it is not personal. As a result, the life of the Greek Orthodox Church has on the whole been one of stagnation. In the West, the church has had trouble, all kinds of controversy from the beginning, and division but progress and vitality, precisely because from the beginning its creedalism rested on this, I believe. The Western formula, therefore, meant from the beginning church trouble and progress. The Apostles' Creed, of course, was not written by the Apostles. The term Apostles' Creed means that this creed is a summation of the apostolic preaching. 
in our scripture lesson from the second chapter Acts, we have Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. The Apostles' Creed is a summary statement of Peter's sermon and indeed of all the apostolic preaching. Very early we find the Apostles' Creed taking form. In the old Roman form, it reads as follows. I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. As is readily apparent, our present version, which came into being by the end of the 7th century, is somewhat longer. There are additional words inserted merely to round it out and to make the meaning clearer, to expand the meaning. The Apostles' Creed, and indeed all Christian creeds, are unlike all other statements of all other religions. In every other religion, wherever you have a statement of faith, you have a body of ideas which demand belief, a set of claims, a set of concepts concerning reality. As a result, it is an expression of a philosophy, an idea. The Apostles' Creed is radically different. Instead of telling us certain ideas that are wonderful or desirable, telling us, for example, the humanistic creed does that Man is to be believed in, and there is great hope for man's future if man simply resolves to do these things. Or telling us, as the creeds of some other religions do, that out beyond this world there is nothing but nothingness. Instead of these things, the Apostles' Creed offers us no ideas but simply a synopsis of history. The Apostles' Creed simply says, History was created by God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. History requiring salvation has been given Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, by God the Father. Jesus Christ entered, lived, died, and was resurrected in history, and now is the Lord and Judge of history. His holy congregation is operative in history, which culminates in the general resurrection and everlasting life.
whole creed, therefore, is a declaration concerning history. It deals with the triune God and with the people of God in history. It declares that God is the creator, the almighty one, who made all things that he sent his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, into this world, that Jesus Christ was miraculously born of the Virgin Mary, died for our salvation, was crucified and resurrected, ascended into heaven, and is there now as our judge and our advocate. He will return at the end of the world to judge the quick and the dead. It affirms our belief also in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Ghost. Then it affirms that God's work is continuing in history, not only directly in his person, but also through the Holy Congregation. This was in the Old English creed used before the Norman conquest, the way the Apostles' Creed read, the Holy Congregation. The church, of course, is another word for congregation. And in the Old Testament, where we read the word translated as congregation, it's the same word, basically, as the Greek word in the New Testament, which is translated as church, <coughs> ecclesia. Now, the holy congregation means that body of believers who are holy, that is, separated and dedicated unto God. As we saw, the old Roman form did not include the word Catholic. It read the Holy Church. The Holy Catholic Church was added to make the meaning clear that this was not a particular church, not that of Rome, nor of Constantinople, nor of Alexandria, but the entire church, both in heaven and on earth, the universal church of true believers who are separated and dedicated unto God in Christ. In other words, the communion of saints, or in the words of the old English form, of the saints, the society. The forgiveness of sins is affirmed as a present reality so that in history there is a body of believers, a body of men, who labor not under the curse, not under the burden of sin and death, but in terms of the glorious liberty of the sons of God, the forgiveness of sins. And the end of history is the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. One word which appears in the creed in the English form sometimes leads to confusion. The word hell. He descended into hell. The word hell in English is used to translate two words in 
and Hades. Gehenna is literally what we mean when we say hell. Hades is a general term for the other world, also for the state of death. Hades, therefore, is inclusive of both heaven and hell. It is a general term for the other life, the other world. So that when the creed declares he descended into hell, it means that, literally, he descended into Hades, into the condition of death, not that he literally went to hell. The whole creed, therefore, is a declaration concerning history that it was made of God, is totally governed by him, and shall culminate in the coming again of Jesus Christ. One of the things we commonly see in almost every church today is the dialectical separation of faith and history. We find, for example, Karl Barth differentiating between the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history. The Jesus of history, these neo-orthodox theologians and preachers tell us, was a man who was born in Palestine who had certain ideas and labored under certain illusions and was crucified and is dead and moldering in some forgotten grave. The Jesus of history thus was a failure. But the Jesus of faith is that idea that men gained and set down in writing which, although it has no relationship to history, has inspired men from that time forth. Now, this difference between faith and history, this dialectical separation, is totally alien to the Bible. It is simply paganism. And no Christian can accept it without forfeiting the faith. Basic to our faith and to the Apostles' Creed is the affirmation that God, the Father Almighty, is maker of heaven and earth. And to this every believer says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Creationism is basic to the creed and to its emphasis on history. God is the creator who made all things. And because God created all things and all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made, he is therefore the lawgiver, the sustainer, the determiner of heaven and earth and of all history. If the world had not been made by God, if the world, if the universe were self-generating, then even if God existed, no matter what he said, it would be irrelevant to this world, irrelevant to man, because man's law would be derived from this self-generating universe, not from God. But because God created heaven and earth, 
God's law governs heaven and earth. And this makes for the fundamental difference between biblical morality and all pagan morality, which we saw a few weeks ago. Tertullian pointed to this difference. In the days of the persecution of the Christians in his apology, he called attention to the fundamental difference between Christians and all others, especially the people of the Roman Empire. He said, the Senate is the source of all law for you. Your Senate, O Romans, not only establishes what is right and wrong, what is moral and what is immoral, but it can also declare men to be gods and create gods. Therefore, your Senate is above all gods and is the source of all law. But for us, God is the source of all law, of all morality. And God alone, in all non-Christian religions without exception, Religion has nothing to do with morality. Morality comes from politics. And wherever politics determines morality, you have paganism and anti-Christianity. And precisely this governs the church today. The morality of the modern church is determined from, by politics. It is socialistic morality. And wherever politics determines morality, you have paganism and anti-Christianity. And precisely this governs the church today. The morality of the modern church is determined by politics. It is socialistic morality, hence it is a social gospel. It is anti-Christian to the core. But if creationism is true, if God the Father Almighty is maker of heaven and earth, then God alone is the source of all morality and law. His word, therefore, is law over church, state, school, business, family, every area of life. As a result, from the very beginning, whenever the church came together, such as in the formulation of the creeds and the ecumenical councils of the early church, it also formulated canons or canon law. The word canon means rule or measure. A yardstick, we would say. And the thesis of the early councils of the church was that canon law was the rule or yardstick or measure of scripture applied to all of life. Do you understand now why conflict between Rome and the church was inescapable? 
You understand now, too, why those of us who believe in this, the Word of God, are in inescapable conflict with the state. Because to believe that this is the Word of God, God who created all things, is to believe, therefore, that there is a canon, a rule, a measure, a yardstick, the Word of God, which must be applied to all of life, every sphere of life. And the minute you affirm that there is such a rule, such a canon, you're immediately at war with the world. And you had better face the fact that there is a war. And you're not going to be raptured out of it. You're going to have to stand, fight, and conquer. And conquer we shall in Christ the King. Moreover, non-biblical faith everywhere is active. Activistic. The believer in all other religions looks at life and he says, this is the way I want it to be. I believe in love, therefore I will say that everyone should love everybody else. I believe in brotherhood, therefore I say this is the truth. Even though men are at war and men are fighting, everybody must love. I believe in equality. Therefore, all men must be equal, and I will make them so. As a result, every non-biblical faith tries to force a particular idea onto reality. But biblical faith, biblical creedalism, is passive in this area. It accepts reality. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe that what he has done in history and what he has declared concerning me and my need of salvation and what shall take place according to God's purpose in history, I believe it. I assent to it. And in this is my hope. It affirms an act of redemption by the triune God. As a result, it is the believer who is the man who faces reality. Those who affirm Christian fatalism can look at reality and face it instead of seeking to impose upon it an ideal. They have assented to history. And this is the essence of freedom. It is saying Amen to God's history of man, of the world, and of God's holy purpose. This, then, is the Apostle's Creed, the door to the house of faith. And a joyful one 
It is significant that throughout the centuries from the days of the early church, this creed has not only been recited, but it has been sung. It has been sung because it is a glorious faith, a joyful one. It is a faith which declares that because God is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and has done such wonderful things as the scriptures and the creed declare. We can rest in confidence. He who has given Christ to die for us will do yet more and care for us. Let us pray. give thanks unto thee, Almighty God, for this thy word, for the glorious salvation in Jesus Christ, for our most holy faith, for the blessed assurance our Father, that thou art maker and governor of all things. Make us ever joyful in this faith. Grant that our hearts sing with expectation, knowing that even in the face of adversity and battle, thou art with us. Thou wilt never leave us nor forsake us. Our God, we thank thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we begin with our questions, I'd like to share with you, since we dealt with creationism in part, a very amusing thing from uh, the comic strip BC recently on creationism. And the one character is asking the other, all right, smart guy, prove that man came from the apes. Okay, apes have tails, right? Yes. Have you got a tail? No. You see, you are no longer an ape. Apes have tails. <laughs> That's very much like a great deal of scientific uh, thinking that goes on today. Any questions now? Yes. What is the difference between and Well, a uh, very great difference because, first of all, uh, Reformation uh, churches do not accept purgatory. And second, Hades refers to the place of the dead and generally to heaven and to hell, both. In other words, the other world. So Hades is a radically different concept. That's no purgatory, you find uh, the first evidences of belief in it in uh, Judaism under the Pharisees. In the second book of Maccabees, you find hints of the doctrine of purgatory. And also the works of supererogation. Yes? Oh, yes. The quick, quick is that an old word for living. And we find it often used in uh, the Bible, him hath he quickened, that is, made alive. Uh, 
This is a case of a word changing somewhat in meaning. For example, another biblical word in the King James Version that has changed uh, its meaning, the sentence, quit ye like men. In other words, acquit yourselves, behave, act, stand like men. There was a little rumpus during World War II when one little manual for soldiers with prayers and uh, various uh, verses of scripture, I think it was put out by the Episcopal Church, was passed out to men and a commanding officer saw the verse that was written on the uh, cover, Quit ye like men. He didn't understand the meaning and for a while he was quite upset and angry. But the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. Yes, be lively or living. Yes. No, it is not in the Bible. It is in uh, many churches, in the hymnal, or in the Book of Common Prayer, or the Book of Common Worship. Yes, uh, in some cases, some churches have uh, changed a word or two. Some, instead of Holy Catholic Church, read Holy Universal Church, which is the same word to avoid misunderstanding. Others read he descended uh, into Hades. Others he descended into the place of uh, the dead. I believe the Lutherans have the place of the dead. But uh, minor variations, mostly those two, in order to uh, avoid misunderstanding. Well, in my circumstance, I do not attend the church
the basic creeds which we will be studying for the next few weeks, uh, the 19 next creed, uh, next week, give us our faith in its essentials. And each of them represents uh, a landmark, one of the great victories of the faith, the culminating victory, of course, in the formula of Chalcedon. In some churches, however, these are used every week. Now, most churches use the Apostles' Creed weekly, and others use the Nicene Creed in communion services. Yes? Uh, the Athanasian Creed. I'd like to believe and find that. I thought it and hundreds. Yes. Well... We will deal with it very soon, and perhaps it would be a good thing to mail out when we finish in the newsletter a copy of all these basic creeds to everyone, and perhaps include the old English form, because I think it's an especially beautiful wording, not only quaint, but very telling of the uh, Apostles' Creed. So, perhaps uh, in March we'll get all of these, including the formula of Chalcedon, uh, into the mail. Yes? You read the ancient Roman. Did you read the Apostles' Creed today? No, uh, I can read that very quickly to you. Would you prefer for me to read the old form and then the modern form to give you an idea of the differences? Thanks. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, in the old Roman form, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. The next sentence. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. It's the same in the old form. Who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. And in the old form, who was born by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and was buried the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, in the old form, and in the Holy Ghost. The Holy Catholic Church, the Holy Church. The communion of saints, this is not in the old form. The forgiveness of sins, identical in the old form. The resurrection of the body, identical in the old form. And then the 7th century or uh, general form, and the life everlasting, amen, is added. Well, I heard the Apostles' Creed as a child in Methodist Catechism, and I don't think they had any descendants in hell. It could be that it was dropped, but I don't know as to that. Any other questions? Yes. 
And when Islam broke up into various states, Islam increasingly became what the state made it. In every non-Christian religion, this is it. For example, in ancient Greece, where did you get your morality? Well, not from the Greek gods. You can read all the stories of the Greek gods and you can't find any trace of morality there. You can find quite a bit of immorality, but no morality. And this is true if you read the stories of any of the gods. I'm using the Greek gods and the Roman gods as illustrative of this, in that morality was not connected with their gods and with their religion. Where did you get it? From the state. First, you had your politics, as in Aristotle, and having determined politics, then you determined your ethics or your morality. As a result, one of the first battlegrounds in the church was over abortion. This is where it came to head-on conflict with the world. Because the thesis of every state was simply this. The right to life and death is the right of the state because the state is God on earth in effect. Therefore, if the state decrees that you can kill babies, you can. If the state decrees that you must, you must. As a result, the slaughter of the innocents, for example, by Herod, was nothing to report in history. He had that right. The slaughter of all Hebrew children by Pharaoh was nothing to report in history from the standpoint of all paganism. Pharaoh had that right. And, of course, you find Socrates and Plato saying that there must be no unlicensed births, that the only births permitted are those licensed by the state if any children are born out of, uh, not wedlock, but out of license. The child is to be killed and the parents are to be punished because the right to life and death, religious power, belongs to the state. And as we are now having a return to this pagan moralism, morality from politics, one of the things right now under all-out attack is our Christian laws on abortion. What does this do? It means that the right to life becomes the right of the state. It's not God's power that governs life. It's the state's power and similarly with capital punishment, and then with euthanasia, mercy killing. You have a three-pronged attack here, all of which will do one thing to say that the state can determine who is to live and who is not to live, because the state is the source of morality. And of course, today the state is the source of morality, in that it is saying, you must integrate and you must love where you feel that you cannot love morally. So the encyclopedias, the comparative religion textbooks are lies. They're full of lies. They are bent upon confusing the issue so that they can push us into a common front with the enemy and destroy us. And the sad fact is that there are very few who realize this, not one in 10,000 in the pulpit today who realize it, 
that in all non-Christian religions, and you can get this from the old religious books of these faiths, the state is the source of law and of morality. Yes? Uh, I want to get back to
yes and no. It is setting up precedents, but what it is actually doing is to replace 